Hello everyone, welcome back to our podcast. Uh, glad as always that you have chosen to join us and I think this is the correct idiom, isn't it, to say that uh, on this podcast we intend to raise some cane? <laughs> raising, we're going to be raising cane on this podcast? Is that is that the same cane? Well, <laughs> I'm not... I'm not sure. I hope we don't end up following in the footsteps of Cain, that's for sure. Yeah. Well, I think I think to raise Cain, and I think it is C-A-I-N, is is a is a phrase um, alluding to Cain and meaning to cause trouble. I, I hope we're not going to cause trouble. But we are going to talk about the story of Cain. My name's Cameron. Well, and I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. Yeah, Ken's not with us. Uh due to the haste with which this recording session was organised. So uh, he'll be joining us again for next week's episode. Uh, I propose that we read the story of Cain and that we stop and provide commentary as we go. Uh, but I'm happy to read the whole thing. No, I'm not. We're going to read it and provide in, stop ourselves with, with commentary. I think we won't be able to help ourselves from throwing a few comments in yeah. along the way. Well, I might start us off from the um, start of Chapter 4 of Genesis... And I'm reading from the ESV. Now, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, she doesn't say anything about Abel. Uh, I'm not sure what is to be read into that. It is pointed out in the Sabbath school lesson that, that she is quite excited about Cain, but Abel's birth passes with, with less comment. I was interested in the way the Sabbath school connected um I mean, I've probably heard this before, but yeah, connected the birth of Cain directly through to the promise um, that is part of the curses, I suppose, that come in Genesis 3. Um, the the mechanism by which Adam and Eve are going to exact mastery or revenge over the serpent is through their offspring. And the lesson points out that, that this... Um, joyous exclamation that Eve gives when she gives birth to Cain might be seen to be um, pointing to her supposing perhaps that Cain was the, this offspring through whom that promise might be fulfilled. That, that's an interesting idea that I, I don't think I've encountered that before. Yeah. Uh, the brothers are not similar. Uh, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. Now I'm going to pause and read that verse again because I'm going to disagree a little bit with some of the emphasis from the lesson quarterly. I'll read it from the NIV. In the course of time, Cain brought some of, brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. Hmm. Uh, now, I'm going to pause here because I do not think, um, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't think God has commanded people at this point in time to bring sacrifices. Certainly, there's been no uh, no, no instruction recorded in the biblical text in, in up to this point in the Bible. I can say that with quite a lot of confidence because not a lot of the Bible has happened up until this point. Only three chapters. Um, yes, well, and I am. It is God. God. I mean, God kills the animals to make clothes. Presumably, that the inference is that the, there's some animals died in the making of the, those clothes. Uh, but there's no instruction for God to 
uh, for the people to sacrifice. And there's no sort of... Uh, he doesn't establish a, a sacrificial system. And uh, the lesson observes that Cain's um, in error here because he brings fruit and veg, whereas Abel kills a sheep and a no, a no forgiveness can occur without the shedding of blood. But it isn't clear to me even that this is necessarily a sacrifice for the purpose of procuring forgiveness of sins. Yeah, that's a good point. It certainly doesn't say that it is. And the sacrificial system in Israel wasn't all about forgiveness of sins exclusively, was it? I mean, there were other... There were. I'm, I'm trying to think of an example. When when they bring Jesus to the temple after eight days, as was the custom, you bring you bring a Thanksgiving offering of what was it, a dove and something a, a, else. A big a big part of it was having a, having a big feast and making sure everyone got to eat, including the poor. And another mm, big part yeah, of it was yeah. supporting the priesthood through a sort of tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and there were Thanksgiving offerings as well as as sin offerings. Um, I mean. You're, you're exactly right. There was also, stretching it out even slightly further, there's the idea of the tithe. So so that that's one that actually does linger on um, into contemporary Christian uh, communities in, in many of them. So, so it just simply says here in Genesis chapter 4, you know, when they'd grown up, when it was time for the harvest, Cain presented some of his crops as a gift to the Lord. Abel also Nothing brought a gift. The, the gift well, they, they to the Lord. They brought what they had. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because when you say it in those words, Cam, they, they brought what they had. That's exactly what the, the poor widow is complimented by Jesus about. So right? it's the implication she, that you're getting at, Locke, that Cain did not bring all of what he had. Well, I'm, I'm not best quite of sure. I think... Had. No, I think the implication is because there's a qualifying phrase added to Abel's offering. So um, Cain brought some of the fruits of his soil, some of them. Abel went to the effort of choosing a firstborn sheep and he, he sacrificed some of the fatty, delicious bits. Right. Um, so, um, uh, so maybe Cain, I mean, sin has already entered the world at this point. Maybe Cain presented some of the, the, uh, the apples with worms in them. Yeah, I think I think that that's the, inf- the the fact that more time is devoted to describe Abel's offering. I mean, at this point, I'm I'm now on a diversion. Uh, not only has there been no sacrifices at this point, but God has not even in- suggested to people yet at this point that there are things they can do to to participate in their redemption. Mm. So for for total. So clarity. this idea that they're this idea that there can't be any forgiveness of sins without shedding of blood presupposes that the people even thought that they ought to seek forgiveness for sins. Because Adam and Eve don't. When does that idea first crop up in the Bible? The sacrificial system as, as, a, as, a, as a substitute. There's already um, altars and sacrifices in the story of Abraham. Right. Um, Abraham... Abraham... I was going to say gets things a bit wrong because he goes to sacrifice Isaac, but that's, of course, under God's instruction. But it seems that one of the points of that story is for God to clarify that he doesn't want children sacrificed Mm. like the neighbouring nations do. So at the time of Abraham, it's quite possible that he didn't have a very clear picture of what was expected. And a lot of the Old Testament, God labours the point that he doesn't actually like the sheep dying. That's not the bit that pleases him anyway. Mm. It's the contrite heart. And it... 
Yeah. This actually Cam, goes right to the heart of a much bigger issue that we won't be able to address in a single podcast episode. I was going to say earlier that for, for everyone listening, for clarity, when you say God hasn't done such or hasn't done such at this point, we in this discussion are referring specifically to the textual evidence in, in the Bible itself. There is, of course, tradition within communities. I think within the Adventist community, there are writings by Ellen White. Um, there is speculation, there is logical implication, all sorts of other things that people have relied on over the many, many generations of reading these passages. Um, and so, for example, there, there, are, there are plenty of people who see the, the text to suggest to them by logical implication that God must have given them all sorts of instruction uh, because he teaches them in the garden. He teaches them at least about the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil and presumably taught them many other things. Um, presumably, however, he, he wasn't asking them to offer sacrifices in some sacrificial ceremonial system in the Garden of Eden prior to what we call the fall. So, yeah, there's all sorts of... Um, speculation that can be made here but on the basis of what's in the actual biblical material what you're saying is exactly correct and i think Camet jumps right to the heart of a very very substantial um pivot point when it comes to reading and understanding some of these stories because i think that there is a there is a fair chunk of traditional christian interpretation here that assumes because adam and eve had that pre-fall relationship and access to God, um, and they existed in relationship to God before sin hindered that whole picture, um, then then there is this assumption, oh, well, that must mean that they really understood everything, and that since then there's been a gradual decaying of the understanding that humans have about God. Uh, decaying away to the point where Jesus has to sort of come and reveal it again. And so in that picture, you have Adam and Eve knowing sort of the most about things because they learned, they heard it directly from the mouth of God. And then you get down to Abraham and he's starting to get things a bit messed up and, and God needs to straighten a few things out. No, we, we're not going to sacrifice children. And, and yes, when I when I make a promise, we're going to do it and we're going to do it my way, not, not any one of half a dozen ways that you think it might be done. And then you get through to the Israelites and the Exodus and the wilderness and the promised land and they they keep forgetting and having to rediscover so that's an that's a that's a narrative of downward trajectory but i think that there's an equally strong element here of upward trajectory sure adam and eve were created but everything was new to them and clearly they didn't understand everything as well as might have been hoped because they fairly well they ate the fruit they ate the fruit and they weren't they didn't require much persuasion in the narrative according to the narrative the 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 whole story of that interchange with the serpent is a little bit bizarre for its for its simplicity in a sense so so there is a certain sense here in which there's a story of innocence developing into knowledge and and the serpent preys on them precisely because they of their innocence and perhaps ignorance. It's interesting of... that you should mention that, Locke, because Genesis 4, um, down in the later verses, which we may or may not get to, um, <laughs> actually directly speaks to that concept. And, and it, it's, it's, yeah. it's a part of Genesis 4 that our faith tradition completely ignores, never right. talks about, 
pretends doesn't exist, as are many of the details in here. Um, mm. Starting with what we're talking about, which is that the, there's no indication within this text or anything preceding it that these offerings have got anything to do with the sacrificial system that the Israelites use later. And mm. In fact, if they did have something to do with that, it might indicate that this was in fact written after the events of later points of Genesis. Right. Because it's it's writing to a cultural knowledge. It's writing, mm, mm. it's a culture that knows about sacrifice mm. that is writing this story and has put this into the story in those terms of language. Yeah. Well, I'm now more puzzled because there's a larger problem that, of which this this uh, lack of information about sacrifices is a symptom. And getting back to this statement of the lesson that presupposes... Um, it, it assumes on the outset that it would have been important for early humanity to seek forgiveness for sins. Hmm. Now, Adam and Eve were not given any, like I'm talking about, like a they weren't given a religion in terms of uh, process and ritual to go through in order to participate in God's redemption. Hmm. They weren't given a sacrificial system. They, there's no record that they were told to pray, which presumably they didn't need to do in the Garden of, Ene uh, of Eden. Um, I'm I'm trying to think of the first time in the Bible where God says because this the reason why this is startling is the Christians stress so heavily and argue the finer points obsessively exactly what part of the redemption process is in our huh. court and what part of it's in God's court is it faith is it works what what constitutes faith what constitutes works what constitutes a belief what level of belief is necessary to ensure salvation whatever that is um and we seem to argue exactly we, we are very perhaps overly pedantic unhelpfully pedantic perhaps at sort of trying to get to the nitty-gritty of what's our job to do mm. in this salvation business and i'm trying to think now that i've removed and I've, i haven't ever done this but reading the story as it reads it's just not there Where's the first time? Because it's not really the flood. The flood starts with the supposition that Noah alone was righteous. Mm. He was already righteous. The flood and him participating in God's mm. um, act of destruction then redemption is, is not really for his personal salvation. Um, I'm trying to think, what's the first time? Would it be Abraham where God says, I want you to get up and go and I'll make of you a special people? And Abraham actually does it. He actually believes in God enough to go and do it. Is that... Yeah, is that, is, is that the first person who's exercised as a sort of a? So I think I think that in the biblical narrative, narrative you I th I would I would tend to agree. Yes, that's that's a key point, and that is why it's the it's the story of Abraham that is really the the start of the the core story of the Old Testament. The the people of Abraham, his descendants, the children that are promised to him become the the medium through which the Old Testament message is presented. Um, everything that happens in Genesis 1 to 11 prior to Abraham is is really about the whole world rather than about the um, the Israelites. And yet, having said all of that, in the midst of the story of Abraham, we discover characters like Melchizedek, the high priest of the living God, who, <laughs> who you know, indicates, yeah. gives this implication that, yeah, there is already some sense of religious duty. There are, other, there are duty. other traditions, other, yeah. other, um, 
other 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 priesthoods. Yeah. Other other uh what's the what's the phrase that it actually uses for to describe Noah specifically? It's um I have it here somewhere. Yeah, uh, righteous, blameless. Mm. Mm. You know, Noah was yeah. a righteous man, blameless in his generation according to the ESV. Well, um Melchizedek obviously was too or or something he he was as as it was so clearly illustrated in um, Hebrews that we've just looked at, Melchizedek must have been of a higher order than Abraham mm-hmm. In, mm-hmm. In, in, in terms of, of righteousness with God. I'd like to throw a new thing into the mix here, Cam, that's totally new to me. I want to test it out on you guys. We always say... Let me let me read it first. So, and I'm going to pick it up in my New American Standard Bible yeah. just for the sake of trying to go with one that's a little bit more formal and literal, because I want to pick out this wording. So, um, you got up to verse four, yeah. um, but only read the first part. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord God had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Ooh, I have then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will, you, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you, but you must master it. And I've just read there to the end of verse 7. I think we normally interpret or read this story and we say, ah, because notice the wording. The wording is, he had God had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. In the New Living Translation, um, the Lord accepted Abel and his gift, but he did not accept Cain and his gift. And it's very interesting there, isn't it? I have not paused often to notice that this is about the accepting and not accepting of the people. I've always thought of it as the accepting of the offering. You know, God didn't accept Cain's offering. But actually, it says here something more striking. It says that he didn't have regard for Cain and for his gift. And then it says, then God says to him, why do you look so dejected? You'll be accepted if you do what is right. And now I want us to hear that phrasing again with the ears that we trained ourselves on a few seasons ago in this podcast with some of those really hard-hitting verses in Psalms and in Isaiah about, you know, what is true worship? What does God, I, I don't want your sacrifice. I don't want the smells of your, of your burnt offerings. I want a changed heart. I want you to be listening and looking out for other people. I, I'd like you to actually approach the world without yourself as your own primary focus. That seems to be what God reiterates again and again in the Old Testament as we unfold more of his revelation. And I just wonder, what if we've always been reading this backwards? What if the reason God doesn't have regard for Cain's offering is nothing to do with the fact that it's fruit Mm. and everything to do with the fact that he actually didn't have regard for Cain in the same way as we we read it in in the Minor Prophets? There's an incentive lock to focus on the specific type of sacrifice because it's reassuring to have a formula to follow okay Uh, so oh okay so the fruit's not good but sheep and this is exactly the sentiment that Mm. um 
Isaiah expresses, where he says, what, you're, you're upset that God's not listening to you? Um, you say, we, we've, we've observed the Sabbaths and we've yeah. taken fasts and we bought all the sacrifices. You know, which, which of the elements are we missing? Yeah. And um, he says, well, you exploit people and mm. you, you exploit the widow and the orphan. So um, I think that a little self-reflection might suggest that our motives for obsessing over the sacrifice rather than the person may be a little bit tainted. Yeah, there, and there it's is, always reassuring to think. It's a reassuring to think if I just bring the right thing to God, He'll just be pleased. Yeah. Yes, and there's a very strong implication here that that God is trying to teach Cain. Oh yeah, and, that's what I was going to say. It's God has not rejected Cain out of hand, fingers in ears. Forever. That's it, yes. right? Exactly. Mm. He's trying he, to he's, teach him to do better. Yeah, and I go even further. What's the actual? In, in, in every verse up till seven, what is the actual, actual the only thing, you know, as, as, as is very clear um, in the New Testament in particular, um, your, your, your motivations, your thoughts, your internal process matters. But what is the only thing that, what is the actual thing that Cain has done that could be considered sin, as it's said in seven, up hmm. until that point? Uh you could be referring to the end of verse five. So Cain became angry. Exactly. Very angry. The strong implication is that the sin here, aside from, you know, what's going on internally, is the anger that it wasn't accepted and he got angry about it instead of going, oh, well, maybe I should try something else. What can I do better? How can I hmm. learn? You hmm. know, it's the pride and you and the anger coming through. Um, huh. And the anger is what leads to verse eight. Yes. You know, I think it's really clear that it says in in five, Cain got angry. In six, God says, you shouldn't be angry. In seven, he says, don't sin. And in eight, Cain murders Abel. Yeah. Yeah. And and mm. it's not just murders Abel. There is something, I think, quite insidious here. It's... It's enticing. Oh yes, deceived and under false. It's yeah. It's you know. It's okay. So it's one thing to just go and kill his brother in in red hot anger. I actually think that there's something a little bit more horrific about this story when he says, you know, let's go out into the fields. Um, yeah, yeah. I think that the when we when we listen for the detail that comes in narrative storytelling, I think that that's an important detail. Yes, he he right. plans to kill him. And mm. he then goes and executes his plan. Mm -hmm. um, so in that sense, it's, uh, you know, an immediate contrast would perhaps be Esau, who had these sort of rages, yeah. you know, who get very angry in the heat of the moment, but then he would forgive very yeah. easily as well. That's not this. Um, and so... You know, yeah. What, what the, I think, I'm, one second, what the, what the implication of what you're saying is, Locke, which I think is a really, really good insight, is the... The the characteristics of Cain, the tendencies to sin that he had in his personality that led to the tragedy of verse 8 was clear to God before verse 3. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. And verses 3 to 7 is God's effort to stop Cain yeah. doing 8 and, and failing. Let me read the next few verses and then... Um reiterate a question I asked earlier in a slightly different form. Um, Cain speaks for his brother when they're in the fields. Cain rises up and kills him. We more or less read that verse. 
Then the Lord said to Cain in verse 9, Where is Abel your brother? He said, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Cain does not express remorse. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve do not express remorse. They're not actually even re- Who is- referred to again in this story. No. And so when we talk about the shedding of blood being essential for the forgiveness of sins, what about uh, repentance? Uh-huh. Now, now the, who is the first character in the Bible that repents of wrongdoing? Because it's not Adam or Eve. It's not... It's not Noah's sons. Well, it's not. Um, it's not at the end of the flood, Noah and it's not any of the other people on the earth at the time of Noah. It's not the Tower of Babel. No. Abel, does Abraham? I mean, I, I would presume that there is repentance off camera. It, it, it's implied that what? I mean, why I, is it not on camera? Well, it's a very good question. The narrative implies that Adam and Eve re- were sorry about what they had done. Although it is never explicitly stated anywhere, uh, but it's implied in things like in, in chapter four, verse one. It, it's uh, what you were saying, like about her excitement about, you know, her praise of the Lord for having given birth, and her excitement about giving birth to the child that she thinks maybe will will defeat the serpent, you know, um, mm. and things like that. But I think it's a really good point. Um, the first one I can think of is sort of. Like the first one that comes to mind immediately is Joseph, Joseph's brothers, and his and his um, brother. Yes, I, that whole generation they they end up looking pretty good. Jacob, Jacob, more or less apologizes to Esau. That's true. Oh well, yes, Jacob definitely, mm-hmm. but he really has to be bought. I mean, an angel has to fight him before he gets to that point. I was actually thinking laterally on this one. I was. I don't think I'm right. I turned to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and I was going to provocatively say God is the first one well, to, I think, to repent I think because Abraham right. bargains him down and says, hey, don't do this, don't do this. And God says, all right, all I right, think I you're won't right, do it Mark, even but for But it's five. not Sodom and Gomorrah, it's the flood. God says he will never again <laughs> okay. fill the earth with waters. Actually, you're right. You're right. That is yeah. That is a very clear sentiment. Right there, that's much earlier than Sodom and Gomorrah. Hmm. Uh, there's a sermon in this, and even when I think about, um, even when I think about um, Jacob, Jacob apologizes to Esau. Joseph's brothers apologize to him. Who is the first character who actually says to God? So by the time we read from David's Psalm. Mm. last podcast episode, where David's very clear, where he says, "I've done wrong," yeah. and he says a curious thing. He says. Against you only have I sinned. Yeah. <laughs> Which is an odd thing to say, but in many ways it's a very enlightened thing to say. It is. Because he's recognised that in hurting all of the people he has hurt, he, he's not in fact saying I've done nothing wrong, no wrong to anyone except for you. He's saying I've done wrong to you, God, by the wrong I've done to other mm. people. Yes, I've done the wrong to other people, but and the that, sin is against you. Yeah. And so that's... that's much closer to our sort of understanding. And it seems to me, if you were going to predicate an argument based on the finer points of sacrificial system, mm. you would need to at least 
have as a prerequisite some acknowledgement of wrongdoing. Yeah. And I, the picture that I'm getting out of this um, story as it unfolds is not of a people who understood God really well or even understood themselves very well. Or understood much of anything. Yeah. Um, for completeness, there is another story in Genesis that we will return to, I'm sure, later on. It's an obscure, in some ways, story because we don't tell it as a children's story. This is of um, Judah and Tamar. And Tamar mm. dresses up as a oh. prostitute and deceives Judah and uh, gets pregnant. And then when he wants to retaliate against her for becoming pregnant illegitimately, she says, well, who belongs to this? Whose signet ring and cords and staff are these? And of course, she's taken them as sort of security. And so Judah, in, in this is Genesis 38, verse 26. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, inasmuch as I did not give her to my son, Shelah. Um, mm. And so there is an acknowledgement there, a sort of an acknowledgement of having done wrong. Um, and that, so it's not absent prior to that story. Prior to that story, Judah is is uniformly a baddie, and post that story, he's uniformly a good. Yeah. There is a suggestion of a wider change of heart. Yes, he... exactly. And and my point being that it's not absent from the vocabulary of the author of Genesis. Mm. So the fact that it's missing here in some of these early chapters, um, I think, can be noticed. Yes, and it's it's very missing here. Uh, I think it's a really good observation, yeah. Cam, that holds all the way through, really, till till arguably the end of the chapter, but at least to 24. We are not telling the story here of of good people doing nice things to each other. Um, if you, if, It doesn't say a lot, it doesn't talk about a lot of atrocities, but if you read between the lines, um, th- this is not, this is not a, uh, a kind yeah. society that's being built. Hmm. And I think it's really interesting that Cain's I hadn't considered that fully before. Cain's only real complaint is that the punishment is greater than he can bear. Not that the, not so that the punishment in, is unfair, just that it yeah he can't handle it. Yeah, <laughs> and it it I mean there is some interesting stuff in the punishment. Um, you you are now cursed and banished from the ground. Not only is the ground the thing that has been producing the harvest because he's a he's an agriculturalist, but the ground only three chapters earlier was what Adam was formed from. So for a descendant yeah. of Adam, the man formed from the ground, to now be banished from the ground, there is a there is a poetic element going on yeah. here as well. I mean, presumably Cain was good at farming and quite liked it and mm. he's now being told that he can't mm. do it anymore it won't he, 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 yeah. he essentially it's it's sort of he's sort of being told you won't be good at it anymore hmm. you can try but it won't work your, your yeah. efforts will fail yeah the uh, i've got so many more questions now than when we started this podcast um well should i add to more is, questions of the whole um you know who are all these other people who are going to attack him and where did his wife come yes, from? And, and all where his, did his wife, children's wives. Where did his wife come from? <laughs> and all of that whole thing that we just conveniently ignore. It's one of the mysterious passages. There's um, several of them in Genesis. Hmm. Um, that, uh, uh, okay, I don't want to, I genuinely don't feel any desire to cause up strife. And, and, and I think that our obsessive um, boundary drawing of of what's true, what's Important, and what's factual, yes. and the blurring, 
and the blurring of those boundaries hasn't helped the church. I just don't think the question is worth asking. Mm. I will say, if it was the author's intent to explain clearly a history of what happened, mm. then he's not a good historian. Yes. Yes. There's um, a lot of unanswered questions here, which I think, you know, we, we don't have time to look at. But yeah. here's what I think. If, if, if we go through, if I can read through um, from... Please do. From 14 to, let's say, 22, because these ones really interest me, and I'll just make some observations as I go, and then we can discuss at the end. Um, so Cain, Cain says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear, that's 13. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. Interesting that, that the implication then is Adam and Eve and Abel up until that point were not hidden from the face of God. Uh, mm. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Okay, well, yeah, we've talked about that already. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any found him should attack him. So that's a whole interesting... Mm. What, what is this mark? How do people who see it know not to... <laughs> what language is this that, that is communicating to people it was not a- to attack Cain? It was a particularly aggressive-looking tattoo, <laughs> yeah. like you know, like a bikey, and you're looking, you think, oh, he's a bit. I won't mess with him. Then Cain went, yeah. So, so sixteen. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. So Adam and Eve were living in the presence of the Lord, and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. That land has a name. Um, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. He's supposed to be a wanderer who has no home, and he's gone and built a city, which mm. is the foundation of settled agrarian society. You can't build cities without farming, and mm. you can't build nomadic cities. Well, yeah, um, sort of. You wouldn't call it a city. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah. the nomadic tribes of Central Asia, they had cities, but they moved in and out of them. Anyway, I'm getting sidetracked. You, you can't, by definition, be a wanderer and build a city. Mm. Mm. And you yeah. can't build a city without farming. Agriculture is the prerequisite of, of urban populations. It is impossible yep. to do it with hunter-gatherers. And very, very... Not real proper urban population if it's um, herds people, right? <laughs> um, mm. So that's real interesting that he's just sort of not following the punishment there. Um then we've got to Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujal, and Mahujal fathered Methushal, and Methushal fathered Lamech, and I'm butchering the names. Lamech is an interesting one, because he's worse than his great-grandfather, hmm. um, by, by the accounts of this chapter. Lamech took two wives, the name yeah. of one was Adar, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adar bore Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So now we're talking about the origins of civilizations again, and different hmm. types of... Yeah. Civilizations. His brother's name was Jubal, and he was yeah. the father of all those who played the lyre and the pipe. So now we're talking about arts and music. Obviously, I hadn't realised that the um, lyres and pipes are tied to such dubious origins in terms of moral grounds. And if drums are to be shunned in churches because they're possible links, I think that uh, certainly a pipe organ's gone if if the father of all people who played pipes <laughs> well, is... Very is, much so. It comes from Cain. Um, so, yeah. last verse in this little section. Zillah also bought Tubal Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. So, tool making and weapon making. Um, the mm. sister of Tubal Cain was Neymar. So, 
it is again very fascinating that Genesis does this a lot in which it connects the the characteristics of civilization with some sort of inherent moral failing. Yeah. It draws a strong thematic connection with cities, agriculture, tool making, instrument making with immorality. So I've encountered this before. And in fact, there's some who read this whole story to be more of a sort of, um, what is it? It's not analogy. What's it when you make a story to just like people called the Lord of the Rings a something and Tolkien said, no, it's not. Oh, um, um, allegory. Allegory. I've, I've heard some people say that this whole chapter is an allegory of the history of civilizations where you have Abel is a nomadic herder. Nomadic herders don't put down boundaries and own the land because they need to move where the food and the crops go, um, food and the, and the feedstock is. Whereas as soon as you become an agriculturalist, you want to put boundaries on and define ownership of the land because you, you can't, your crops don't wander. And so in human history, you have crop farming agriculturalists fighting off nomadic wanderers in order to defend their lands. And so that's the, the Cain kills Abel kind of allegory going on there. I, I don't think that's the, the, the depth um, of interpretation that, that exists here in, in the story, but it is nonetheless an interesting observation. Continuing your theme, Luke, um, the Tower of Babel, which comes a few chapters later on, is clearly a city that is judged as being evil in the eyes of the Lord because of their urban accomplishments. And then when God does come and start something kind of special in his relationship with Abraham, mm. which, as we've commented, becomes the, the story of the Old Testament, what does he say to Abraham? Leave your comfortable civilization and become a, a, a nomadic wanderer yes. again. <laughs> Wandering is associated with spiritual growth in yeah. the Bible yeah. and, and repentance to a certain extent. And then that comes back to that whole thing is, Cain's punishment, is that supposed to be good for him? And does he fail again to take advantage of the lesson God is trying to teach him by going and founding a city? Uh. I mean, who who knows? If you you read Genesis so far, would you say, yeah, God is sovereign over his creation? Because his creations are not very good at doing what he wants them to do. Um, And so that's its own question. Uh, I've got questions all over the place now. Um, <laughs> while, while you ponder this them, is not helping can, me at can all. Can I read twenty three and twenty four? Because um, it, yes. it adds just a little bit more to this. So, so we've talked about Lamech, and he's he's the great grandson of Cain, or the great great grandson. Um, and he says to his wives, Adder and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy sevenfold. So he's a few generations down from Cain, although lifespans, whatever, could still be alive. But obviously, this culture has mm. has has taken in these ideas of revenge. Cain's revenge is a mm. is a cliche in their culture yes. that can yes. be referred. It's a cultural reference. And interesting when when Cain had this um, protective mark of 
sevenfold punishment. It was it was issued by God, but right. when you get to Lamech, he's, he's just self-claiming he's, it he's, with, he's just, with a multiplicative yes. factor. He's claiming essentially to be uh, yeah. 70, 70 times greater than God. Yeah, yeah. Essentially. Um, and and that yeah. he, he'll kill anybody who, who hurts him. Um, yeah. So you're getting this picture of this society that Cain has founded, the city mm. that he's founded as, as being... Um, well, by our standards of morality, pretty pretty bleak. Mm. Um, and and so I wonder, because this is something which we know to be true historically, if you will. The Israelites were a nation of nomadic pastoralists, surrounded by agricultural city-based empires mm. that that treated them pretty poorly, basically all the time. And I wonder if we don't just sort of see that reflected in these stories <laughs> a fair bit. Yeah, yeah. Well, you could say it's a cultural yeah, it's bias, possible. but but also not one, one one that's not without reason. The Israelites may well have looked at these these decadent city empires and gone, mm. yeah, they're not following God, and and they'd be that have been right to say it. Yeah. Mm. So, um, two thoughts. One of them was. Um, if God has so much in favour of wandering peoples and so much uh, against these uh, natural resource exploiting um, civilised in inverted commas city builders um, I wonder what he thought about the early colonisation of Australia <laughs> um, Probably because, he did not view it favourably Cam Well this is it's it's just really um, I don't know where that thought leads, but the thought came to me. Mm. And um, I wonder if there is genuinely... I know uh, when I had to preach last, I went up into the mountains and I wanted to go for a walk anyway and the timing worked and I said, all right, well, I'm going to plan my next sermon while I'm up there. And um, I do wonder if there is something sort of objectively um, obstructive about the hustle and bustle of a city. I don't. I don't know. I'm sure that God can work in any situation. I. I don't. I don't know. I'm not fully comfortable with saying that God thinks less of city dwellers than than country folk. Well, but, if I can say uh, so, Cam, it's irrelevant for you folk down in Tasmania because <laughs> your entire island has less than a fifth of the population of Sydney. So, I think less you're than, safe. Less than a tenth. Less than a tenth. Well, that means hardly you don't even have cities down there. So I think you're pretty safe. Yeah, don't uh, don't say that to anyone from Launceston. Like. Um, that's right the city or, of Lonsas. i now ref, i now remember is, that wording from the yeah, yeah, the yeah. council car park <laughs> yeah 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 exactly um the other thing is this uh last couple of verses that uh, you stopped short of luke uh it just says that adam knew his wife again she bore a son called him seth mm. she said god has appointed for me another offspring instead of abel for cain killed him she doesn't seem to lament the loss of cain also because she lost cain and abel mm. um because Cain was sent away. Uh, then it says, To Seth was also born a son, and his name was Enosh. So we're now talking third generation. Mm. And then it says, At that time, people began to call upon the yes, name of which the is Lord. A, which well, is what, completely unexplained and what, very what, what fascinating. What were they doing before then? <laughs> and was, was calling upon the name of the Lord... Is that a good uh, thing? Is it a bad a, thing? What does it, it even thing? mean? It, it's not explained. But I will yeah. say there's something quite interesting here, Locke, which ties back into verse 1 of chapter 4, which you mentioned with the the 
idea that Eve might have that her son is the one who will lead to the defeat of the serpent, right? And with Seth, she is correct, because chapter 5, of course, goes into Enosh's genealogy, which leads mm. to Noah, which ultimately leads to Abraham, David, Christ. Mm. And, mm. And, and that's the, the culmination. So she wasn't wrong, but this story is written yeah. very much to sort of, in some ways, all of this seems to be some sort of explanation for why Seth is the important one. Yeah, well, I, I was even wondering, and perhaps this might be a point on which to end. I'm just noticing the time. Um, to me, it's very striking here in verse 25 that it cuts, you know, we, by the time you got to Lamech, you were how many generations down from Cain? Quite, quite a few. Quite a few. Uh, let me see. It's, uh, so we've got Cain himself, and then we've well, we've got Enoch, then Irad, Mahujal, Methushal, and Lamech. So that's five generations. Yeah. And Which then also in verse 25, implies shorter lives, perhaps shortened by mm, violence. Yeah, it could be. So in verse 25, it cuts back to Adam, to Eve, and to their next son. Now, Presumably, this is not trying to do anything chronological here. It's not trying to say that Seth was born after Lamech. I don't think that's even implied. But what does strike me about that storytelling construction is that it strongly implies a certain level of dead-endedness mm. to the trajectory of Cain. And I think the way the story is told, it implies... This way of living, of approaching the world, of approaching fellow humans and of approaching God just doesn't lead anywhere. Um, it becomes a, a totally abandoned branch of the story of Genesis moving forward. Mm. Um, and maybe that's something that we, that we can reflect on. Well, the only, I, place it leads to, the only place it leads to is more violence. Indeed. Yes. Indeed. And I, I like the idea of connecting this with the calls to action that we find throughout the rest of the Bible, um, you know, looking out for the widow, looking out for the fatherless, looking out for the poor, the needy, the hungry, the naked, the, the, the attitude mm. of listening for those that need help rather than trying to defend or, uh, or somehow amplify my own importance. Um, one of those paths is a dead-end path. Mm-hmm. We, we will leave it there. Uh, there are many other questions I have. Uh, I will ponder them and maybe report back at the next podcast. I'm now thinking through all number of virtues and trying to think who's the first character in the Bible that actually exhibits <laughs> those virtues. And you, you're bringing up charity, Locke. I'm trying to think of the first person in the Bible who is charitable. Yeah. Um, and Joseph would have to be a strong contender. Mm. Uh, anyway, lots, lots of food for thought. Uh, thank you so much to our listeners for, for joining us. Uh, if they have any comments, they can send it to the address sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. They can also, if they want, uh, share this podcast with anyone, anyone that they like. We we are really glad that there are people who choose to listen to it. And if yeah. you know of anyone who would who would benefit from listening, then, then share it with them. You can please. share it seven times or 77 times. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we hope that you join us next week. 